Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you the listener clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. My practice specializes in providing fact-based strategic and risk management advice to clients that are buying, selling, or growing the value of companies and intellectual property. Brady, we're sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Our topic today is, should I hire a finder to raise money? And according to Carta, it takes about two years on average to secure funding for a startup. And according to the Corporate Finance Institute, the chances of being funded by a bulge bracket venture capital fund are less than 1%. And that's probably being generous. So I've been around the startup world a little bit. And our our guest who's coming on today has really been around the startup world a a lot, more than I have. And, um, you know, raising money for a startup is not easy and it's, it's not fun. Um, raising money for a startup means a lot of rejection, means a lot of unsolicited advice, some of which is good, some of which isn't very good. Um, and, and, you know, it's, I think for many, for many startup CEOs, it's, it's probably the part of the job that most of them like the least. And therefore, it's not, un, it's not unexpected that one might anticipate that it would be tempting to outsource that task to somebody, and that somebody is typically called a finder. Um, and we're going to talk about specifically what, what a finder is, but if you're in the startup world, you already know what a finder is. If you're not in the startup world, but will be at some point, this conversation is going to come up, uh, I promise, because a finder can perform uh, not just a very important, but actually an existentially important service for a startup. But the choice is not without its pitfalls. And joining us today in this conversation is Karen Rands, who is president of Cougarand Capital Holdings. Karen's extended team offers coaching and services to entrepreneurs to help companies with capital strategy and investor acquisition through the Launch Funding Network and Investors Education, Screening, Due Diligence, and Syndication Services through the National Network of Angel Investors. Karen Rands is the leader of the Compassionate Capitalist Movement, is an authority on creating wealth through investing and building successful businesses that can scale and exit rich. Karen turned the knowledge she gained from her corporate experience of working with startups and innovation at IBM and the 12 years she spent managing the network of business angels and investors, one of the top 50 angel groups in the U.S. at its peak, into the best-selling primer, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing. Her book and the accompanying resource panel teaches savvy investors how to diversify their investment portfolio to include include private equity ownership into entrepreneur endeavors. Karen hosts the popular business podcast, The Compassionate Capitalist Show. The weekly show is available on all the major platforms, the library of over 240 episodes. Her chats with angel investors, venture capitalists, business industry leaders have been downloaded over 145,000 times. Karen also speaks to economic development, community, and corporate groups groups to to spread the word about compassionate capitalism as a way to strengthen and grow our economy. Economics is a passion for Karen, having received her bachelor's in economics and English from Emory University before earning her MBA in marketing from University of Florida. Karen Rands, welcome to the Decision Vision podcast. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. And I'm going to try to not study here. I don't know what the heck is wrong with me. I probably need another sip of my Earl Grey tea, but we will. <laughs> so, 
Karen, again, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I, I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. And, and I want to start for those in our audience who maybe don't know exactly what we're talking about. So they have a, a shot of hanging into the conversation. What is a capital or a money finder? So typically the finder will offer to locate investors for a company in exchange for a success fee. They're most often not, and that's the commission based on what they're able to raise. They're most often not registered with the ACC, and that's where it becomes a problem. But finders are also used in for angel investors and startups and raising capital, but also could be part of reverse mergers and also with merger acquisitions, trying to find people to buy a company or fund an acquisition of a company. And, and why do companies find it attractive to work with a money finder? Okay, well, you know, the common perception, particularly with startups, is that finders are a cheap way to find capital because, you know, actually, if you're only paying for success, then it doesn't actually cost the entrepreneur anything, right? And they don't have to the traditional type of finder that's in this context. They don't have the same types of retainers and fees like broker dealers. And the percentage that they charge on the money they raise is a lot less than a licensed broker dealer. They also have the idea that multiple finders working on their deal because since they have no skin in the game for that entrepreneur, why not have a bunch of people trying to find this capital? But the risk in this is this false sense of expectation that those um, finders are actually doing the work. But what can happen with on the investor side is that, particularly in a community like Atlanta, where we live in, if there's a lot of finders working it, it might pass an investor's desk a couple of times, or they see it someplace, and they start to think, well, what's wrong with this deal? This deal must stink because uh, so many people are shopping it. So, you know, that's always the way that you should, you know, consider it's, it's there's a different way to approach it where we'll get into talking about, but um, most often it doesn't work out near as well as entrepreneurs think it will. Yeah. So I want to, I want to pause on both those points you raised, because I, I think, I think they're both interesting. And one of them, frankly, I hadn't thought of. Um, the first point being that, you know, it can be tempting to wish your problems away because you hire a consultant, right? And that was a lesson that uh, my first full-time boss, John Noel, taught me was never let a consultant wish your problems away. And it's it's easy to let a finder wish your problems away, right? Because, I mean, raising capital, I mean, you know the deal. Raising capital is not hard and it is not typically self-esteem building either. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's very hard. And you got to have uh, Teflon in order to deal with all the no's and rejection that you get in the process. Exactly. Right. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's tempting to say, well, who needs it? You're going to take this off my plate. Yes, please. And thank you. Right. Right. Um, now, the other part I hadn't thought about, but I think makes perfect sense. I, I'd love you to elaborate on it if you can, is that you know, if you do have multiple finders in the in the market, and I agree with you, that's a strategy you should do. So if, if everybody's on contingency, it's all about from the finder standpoint, which is the deal that's closest to getting closed and therefore my fee, right? So you want to have it out there. But I and and we we both know the deals that are circulated in the marketplace. And we both we both know instances of quote, those entrepreneurs who seem like they've been raising money for 19 years, right? And they're still a startup. <laughs> And there's that deal staleness, but I hadn't thought of the fact that finders can actually create that as well. Uh, if you have that, if you have the same deal be coming from different angles. Yeah, right. Right. Because, you know, sometimes what ends up happening is to your point about, you know, the paid advice, you know, if a company goes through an incubator and an accelerator and they get some information and they, through that process of doing that because of the mentors, they'll, you know, the kind of finder you want is the person that loves your deal, is mentoring you on the deal, and is happy to share it with other people because they like your deal. They like you, and they're considering investing themselves in it, right? So that's not the finder that we're talking about. The finder that we're talking about is when oftentimes, and I have myself have been in this position back when I was running the angel group and working with screening deals and working with you know entrepreneurs and investors, is that they'll... You tell them that they have to do X, Y, and Z to be investable. They might have to pivot. They might have to do more research on their marketplace, their go-to-market, how they're going to scale. They might have something fundamentally wrong, but they don't want to hear that 
So it's much easier to go to a finder that says, hey, I can raise you that capital. I know these guys. I'll put it together a lunch or a dinner or this or that. Give me five grand or pay for the big hoo-ha of this stuff and 5%. You know, And then when that finder doesn't raise the capital, they get to blame the finder. And the finder's just doing a side gig because, come on, if you're not really paying them, if you're not paying the 5000 and you're just doing the percentage of, well, how are they paying their bills? It's not their core thing. And they and like and they will work with the ones that are paying them. And and you just become the one. If I come across an investor that didn't like the deal that I'm getting paid for, then maybe and they and they're in your industry, then I might introduce you because I might I'm I'm not leaving everything on the table. I might get a little something, something. So that brings up so many points here. We could probably make a whole podcast just out of that last two minutes, but one thing you bring up that that uh, I think is important is that the finder market, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression of the finder market is that it's very informal, right? We both know it's unregulated or quasi-regulated by the SEC, and we'll get that we'll get to that in a little while, I think. But there isn't like some storefront that says "finders are us," right? Or, <laughs> no. If you do a Google search, you're not going to find like like Capital Finder generally. Um, it's, it's often somebody, somebody that's, that's doing something else kind of for their living, isn't it? Yes. It's often, it could be an attorney. It could be an accountant. It could be somebody else, right? But somebody, or, or like you said, somebody that is genuinely interested in the deal, but they want to be paid for helping to close out the round. Um, and, and so how does that, how does that change the dynamic of the relationship as opposed to most service providers where, you, you know, you kind of own them after you pay the fee, right? I, I perform a service as a consultant. My client, to a certain extent, owns me, I think rightfully so. That relationship with a finder is going to be a little bit different, isn't it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because there's no, there's really no the skin in the game on the entrepreneur side. The only skin in the game is on the, uh, on the finder side because they're the one that's doing all the work. And for finders that have kind of played in that space, because, you know, I'll come across young people that don't haven't been burned by any of this stuff. And they think, oh, I know people. I was uh, I was a uh, uh, participant in XYZ incubator. I met these investors. Now I'm going to turn around and go and help you connect it. And you're going to give me a percentage. And so they, um, you know, they just they they have a little bit of the skin in the game. But because if they don't hit get a hit in the first half a dozen conversations, uh, then they will just not keep working on it. They're looking for low-hanging fruit. And you don't know that they're not working on it because they think, well, maybe, or maybe this guy will get back to me or maybe whatever, you know, kind of a thing. And so you get you you get a false sense of stuff getting done as an entrepreneur that doesn't get done. You know, that's, that's interesting. It, it, it approaches that sort of at a different angle, something I say a lot, whereas you know, in a way, a deal pitch is like a joke. If you don't, if the person doesn't get it right away, no amount of explaining after that <laughs> makes the joke funny. Yeah. It just never happens, right? And nobody says, now I get it. And I'm just hyperventilating. Yeah. Right? I mean, they may laugh politely. So a golf applause kind of thing or pity, <laughs> but they're not really laughing. Right. And, and deals are kind of the same way. Right. And I guess what, from a finder's perspective, when, when a finder takes that, that on, they probably have in mind some small group of a handful of people they think would have an interest if it's all knows. They're not going to make it their life's mission like Indiana Jones to go <laughs> to the jungle to find those to find those investors, right? Because that's that's just not their thing. Right. You know, the exception is that they have to have a vested interest. Somehow there's got to be a vested interest. And we and I guess we'll get into that and yeah. how that works. Now um, I think a lot of people initially, if they don't understand the finder market. They're often turned on to or find themselves what we would call broker dealers of some kind, business brokers, investment bankers, and so forth. Um, they don't generally like to take on fundraising deals, which is a reason I think that that finders have the niche that they do. Is that also your experience? And if so, why do you think that is? Okay, so this is where this one is one to unpack because. Broker dealers have have historically been the only people that were licensed to be able to raise capital for projects, deals, whatever. 
and they they and there's a budget license. It's not just one license. Um, but they not only have the ability to find investors, but handle the transaction, structure the transaction, and the exchange of capital money for the stock. They can handle do all of that stuff. And so sometimes when a finder, a person acts as a finder, and they're not licensed, they'll have, there's this term that they were acting as a broker dealer and so or acting as an investment banker that is licensed or acting as a business broker when they really weren't right and so because they weren't licensed to do that so they can't act as something that they should be licensed for that's illegal and that's where you get into who goes to jail and who pays fines and those kind of things when things like this blow up which oftentimes they don't because it's not really something that the SEC is chasing after so, you know, it's really happens when an investor, uh, so the company doesn't perform the way the investor expected it to perform, and they file a complaint with a broker dealer, the FINRA, which is a quasi, not quite a government agency bureaucracy that I'm not a big fan of, because I think they've done more harm to the financial markets than they've done to protect investors. But they then go in and investigate and determine if that broker dealer, so the broker dealer is held accountable for all of that stuff. And if the broker dealer, there's a couple of different things that broker dealers are beholden to. One is which is what they call, um, it's uh, it's basically a fair, I forget the exact terms, but it's like a, a fair disposition. So when they, that means that they, have to make that opportunity available to all of their um, clients and all of their dealers. So if the deal, the deal has to be big in order to get spread out, particularly if you're dealing with a a giant company like Ameritrade or or Raymond James or something like that, that are wirehouses, even a small independent broker dealer probably has a thousand clients that they, that they manage money for. And so they have to make it available. It has to be fair and equitable. So if it's not big enough to make, make available to everybody, then it's not worth doing. And the fees associated with that, they usually will have between five or $10,000 a month, plus fees to do their offering documents, plus big percentages. They're allowed to charge up to 15%. Mm-hmm. So if a company is needing to raise capital, a startup that raises a million, two millions, three million, maybe another a Series A round of five million or something like that, that's all still small for broker dealers. So broker dealers just won't really touch it. And because of the regulatory, you know, investigation environment of, of FINRA, it's really easy for if a deal goes south. And they take on the responsibility of that due diligence and an investor, you know, oh, you put it into my mom's stuff. The son says she should never have invested in that deal. Then they can say, well, it was too risky for that particular investor. And therefore, it's a violation of their broker dealer. There's another rule for that. And then one of the things that people like independent, like an independent broker dealer, independent um a financial planner that just has their license hanging with somebody, they have, there's, there's this fear, uncertainty, and doubt, the FUD that comes along with what FINRA can do and not do. There's real rules. And then there's this, this idea of, they call it selling away. So where that financial planner that has clients that might want to be angel investors gets into a bind is that even if they're not taking a commission on that transaction, Unlike real estate, because a broker dealer doesn't man it, do buy and sell real estate, they can disclose that they help this um, investor do uh, a, a commercial investment in real estate that's part of their portfolio, and it's not considered selling away. But if they help this person do an angel investment deal, put fifty grand into some startup, then it might be considered selling away because technically the broker dealer would have, could have, even though they wouldn't have, could have, um, uh, you know, handled that transaction. And then, and that independent can lose their license. And so they steer away from it. So there's really no way for companies to really go to the people in the financial services sector to get that. And that's why the Jobs Act, one of the big reasons why the Jobs Act was passed bipartisanly. So uh, you touched upon this. This is a great segue in, in the next, into the next question, which is that there are risks to hiring a hiring a finder, and they go beyond simply sort of the stale deal syndrome. 
don't they? I mean, there there are there are instances where a finder deal could potentially blow up if things aren't done correctly, right? Right. Absolutely. Uh, so the SEC has this these these rules that um, you know, as I mentioned, if a comp- if an investor, if like if a, if a deal has milestones and they expect and say they went through a regular old private placement memorandum or they did, which is the document that that entrepreneurs prepare to disclose the risks of their offering. And in that, it doesn't fully disclose, let's say, and that investor thinks that they asked all the questions, but they don't ask all the questions. And they think that there's like a, uh, a, that this company is going to get that big deal with Microsoft. And therefore they're going to make all of those projections. And in reality, they never actually had a real deal with Microsoft. They just had a conversation at a trade show, let's say. And so then that um, they don't get that deal. The deal fails or the deal stumbles and they don't raise the next round of capital or they don't do their stuff and they don't fully reach the objectives. And that investor can say, uh, you know, can sue because they can say that was fraud. They said they were going to get this deal. They didn't get this deal. And then under those terms, when the when the SEC investigates, they'll say, oh, that person did commit fraud. They didn't fully disclose the risks of that investment or they used their money in a wrong way or they used a finder that wasn't licensed. And when the SEC finds out that they used a finder and they might also find this out when that company goes to sell to a public company and the public company has to do the disclosure. Or they go to go public and the SEC is looking at all their stuff and they find that in any of those circumstances, the deal can go south and the investors have the right of rescission, they call it, where they can get all their money back that they put into the company at whatever they put it in. They don't make any money on that, but that is a recipe for the company to go out of business because they have to pay back this money that they don't have that they spent, right? And they have potential that founder has or that that executive office that that did that has the potential to um, go to jail, too, depending on how serious the non-disclosures are or the, or the fraud is. And they have um, they get labeled a bad actor. And so a bad actor is one of those things that is now in all of the Jobs Act offerings is that you cannot have a bad actor in that company that owns more than 10 percent of the company and any of that kind of stuff. And so those are all kinds of things that. It's all new language to people that are investing in some of these companies, but that's what happens. And so the finder usually does, it gets a slap on the wrist unless they've been doing it a lot and a lot. And I got some horror stories of people that have defrauded people all over in Georgia, but never got held accountable because of the fragmentation of security laws when it comes down to a state level. But then also the, uh, the big thing is that the company, it really hurts the company when they use finders and it gets found out. So when typically do companies use finders? Do they, do they, in your mind, do they typically find them at the pre C level or the C level or when they get into more institutional capital? What, what stage of the company's development do they typically, do they typically engage with finders? They, it's usually when they don't know how to go raise a friends and family round. Or when they're raising their first seed seed round outside of a friends and family round. So it's still really early on. Because once you have real investors in your deal, because you raise money from an angel investor group and stuff like that, if you maintain good communications with those people, those investors have a vested interest to help you find other capital. Mm. Because otherwise, their investment doesn't grow the way they expect it to grow. And so it's really before there are real real serious accredited angel investors involved in a deal and that an entrepreneur doesn't know where to go and they've not been able to qualify to get to an angel investor group either for lots and lots of different reasons they may not it couldn't it doesn't necessarily mean that the deal is not meritable it could just be the industry that that local angel investor invests in and they're not in that same industry so they get desperate to try to find investors and then they'll go and they'll ask people and they'll say, hey, I need you to go help me find investors and I'll pay you a commission. I mean, that's the that's the conversation. And they don't really they really ask that. The difference is, is that somebody that's professional in such as myself that knows investors and knows how to structure what makes an investor, an entrepreneur investable. You know, we're professionals. And just like um, a lawyer, an accountant is professional. They won't they rarely will go file patents and do all that stuff hoping that Wednesday you'll raise capital and then be able to pay me. They don't do that work 
you know, thinking that they might get paid in the future, they could do the work for the work they're doing right now. So we talked about some of the pitfalls here. Um, how do you mitigate those risks? I mean, the risks are obviously out there. You still want to use a finder. I mean, do you just have to sort of accept those risks or are there things you can do to, to, to lessen the probability that those things will happen to you? So part of it is really validating doing your own due diligence on a finder. If you're going to be serious. Now, first of all, you, you're not going to want to do it on 100% commission. We already covered that. You're not going to want to have a whole bunch of people shopping your deal. We covered that. So what you want to do is find somebody that really has relationships with funding sources, whether they're angel investors, private equity funds, family offices, VCs, whatever it is. They've got relationships with people and know how to talk the talk of investors. Okay. And the second thing is that you want to compensate them for the work that they're doing. You need to put a contract in place. And the best way to avoid the pitfalls of, you know, what the SEC might do is to be able to say, give them some kind of equity ownership in the company, give them a title in the company, have some kind of compensation plan that's based on come up with a fixed fee. This is what it's worth if you raise this amount of money. So it's not a percentage. And then you pay them for the work they're doing. And they're reporting to you just like a consultant does, just like anybody else does. They have a, um, a, a, a Google Doc spreadsheet where they're listing the investors that they're talking to, the status, the meetings, and, and all that stuff. And that unlicensed person isn't acting like a broker-dealer. So they're not selling the deal. They're making the introduction. The founder has to sell the deal. The founder has to create the documents that one of the things that that, comp- that, in- that person might be, that in- uh, investor acquirer, the investor introducer rather than a finder, is um, they know what kind of documents those investors are expecting to see to market the deal. So the entrepreneur has created it under the guidance of this person. And then that person takes that document and the document sells the company to have a conversation with the, with the founder or to go to a a due diligence portal. So you, so to the all that information and it's all going directing it back to the entrepreneur and they get you, the finder, the, that person that's helping you will validate their level of accredited, being accredited, will validate their level of interest and then give them access to this portal to do due diligence and keep driving, overcome the objections of the company. But really it's ultimately up to the, um, founder, that entrepreneur to find it. But, but the entrepreneurs should have people that are in their board, people that are in their company that all have a vested interest in the success of the company. So in one, in that situation, everybody in the company is acting as a finder because everybody in the company is trying to find the capital to help the company go to that next level. And one of the, uh, an ideal place to help to, is somebody you might bring on as a board of advisor because you want to hire them. They're a top gun in an industry that's really going to open up doors for other capital. So what you want to tell that person to do, say, look, I'm going to hire you for a hundred grand or whatever that is plus stock, but you got to go find an investor that's going to put a hundred grand in this company to pay your salary. So, um, how, you know, actually, before I go on, there's one, one comment I want to make. So I think that's, I think that's really important. I think it's really smart. Uh, people are surprised when I often, I tell them sometimes my clients that you're actually better off, I think, paying somebody like a finder, a retainer, or at least a modest retainer, in addition to their finders. And they say, why? And, and my answer to that is, is because, well, because if you fire them, you want it to hurt them, basically, right? If you fire somebody that's on 100% contingency, it really doesn't matter, right? And, and again, whichever deal is at the top of the pile, whichever deal they got, they got a sort of a little nibble on the line. That's when the finder is going to go after, right? But that retainer gives you a little bit of skin in the game. That if you want that, if I'm the that that finder, if I want to keep that gravy train going to keep paying some of the bills in addition to that that bonus I get at the end in terms of raising capital, then I need to be doing something every month to show that I'm earning that money. Right. And I think that you do you do get and are entitled to more sustained, focused effort on your deal if you do pay a retainer. Yeah, it's shared risk. It's a shared risk model. 
that company's risking some capital, some some of their cash flow or something for that. And the and the finders risking not getting the, the money that it's really worth, right? For their time and knowledge and resources, um, if they don't perform, if they're not able to do that. And and it and it becomes a really shared value model because you want you have you want that entrepreneur to to fully disclose because if you bring a real investor to the table and the deal gets blown because of something silly or stupid or something that wasn't disclosed and all that work that that finder did is for not because the 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 founder couldn't close it or the investor didn't you know so I mean it's so term structure all kinds of stuff your documents everything about it becomes more of a win-win and a collaborative approach to finding the capital because the SEC is really clear on what finders should not be doing. And that's the stuff that gets in trouble when you have them do that stuff purely on commission and acting at stuff. And, and somebody that isn't familiar with those rules can jeopardize the company in the long run. Yeah. And those, those things include, you know, don't, for example, don't talk about valuation, right? Don't go around with a, with a securities price. Cause that'll, that'll make something look like an offering for sure. Yeah. I mean, well, you can share the offerings, right? Because that's through due diligence. You know, you're doing the introduction and you're not, and they'll, and you, once they're qualified that they have an interest and they have the ability to invest, then you give them the offering memorandum that the lawyer developed or, you know, somebody else developed for that company to do. So we've talked about finder compensation and uh, I'd like to, uh, it's probably an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I think you can handle it. And that unfair question is when when you've encountered or maybe worked with finders or maybe been a finder yourself at some point in the past, what what sort of of fee should I expect to pay? You know, typically if it's a percentage of the deal, what percentage of the deal is going to that finder typically? So the way the the formula that they usually use is called a Lima formula. I'm not even exactly sure how you spell that, but um, I just have always Lehman scale. Yep, Lehman, Lehman. There you go. I always just kind of whatever. So it's typically the same sort of thing that says it's five percent on the first million, four percent on the next one to two million, three percent on the next two to three, and two percent on everything above that. Okay, and you find that's fairly consistent in the marketplace. Yeah, because most finders don't raise more than a million dollars. Yeah. And so they'll they're going for the five percent. And most entrepreneurs that are hiring a finder, they they balk at a large amount. So sometimes an investor will, you know, have I mean a, a finder, you know, some of the quasi-angel groups that let companies pitch for a a success fee, they will have a straight up five percent kind of a thing. That, you know, that that's interesting. I, I truly was not, I just haven't followed that market enough, so I wasn't aware. But what's interesting is that that's actually cheaper than paying a broker dealer to sell an existing business, right? They'll charge between eight to 10% for a business with a value of about a, of about a million dollars. So interesting. I would argue that being a finder is actually harder, but the fee <laughs> is lower. So I'm, I'm surprised to hear that. That's, that's, yeah. I learned something. Well, and the other thing about it is that if that if that entrepreneur chooses not to pay the finder, there's really no recourse. Yeah. Because technically the finder, if they were purely, if they were operating as a broker dealer, you know, and trying to sell the deal, not under some of the ways that we couched it before, then um, they, they're going to go to court and try to get their money. You know, particularly if there's just some kind of, there's not a real contract of here's the services that were being offered and why I'm being compensated other than finding capital, then they don't really have it. And then they also have to judge if their fee was going to be like, say they were going to collect, you know, $5,000. Well, what, you know, is it worth going and hiring a lawyer to try to go get that? You know, so it's, it's, that's, it's a risky world for finders out there if they don't have the right structure or they're trying to really fly underneath the radar of what's legal and not legal and in the gray area. Yeah. And so that, that brings up my, my next question, actually, which on the surface sounds weird, but given what you just described, I think it's very apt. Are finders agreements typically in writing? Um, yes. They are. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, there's some, like if you're doing this to sort of test the waters, 
then um, you'll say, I'll, I'll put an agreement in place with you when I find this investor that wants to invest. And you have a verbal agreement on the fees and stuff like that. And then you're really involved. But if you um, like in the case of, uh, you know, where you've if you've worked with them for and you did do investments and it's 60 days or 90 days is the minimum engagement for an exclusive on that. And on a, an investor, an entrepreneur wants to have is willing to do an exclusive because they're going to have this committed focus and compensation on these three months with that person that's going to acquire investors for them. Um, at the end of that, you want to have something that's a non-circumvent that says, because deals take time. So if it, somebody you invested that you introduced them to in month two, invest month six, you still want to get paid because it happened as a result of that, even though if you weren't getting paid in month four, five, and six. And so that's where that non-payment comes because they might continue to work with them. And if you're not staying in touch with both the investor and the entrepreneur, then they, because the investor doesn't know, the investor, you know, isn't expecting that. And investors don't like to pay finder's fees. And that becomes a big problem on the investor side. If if a finder doesn't disclose, that's one of the no-nos at the SECs. If you don't disclose that you're collecting a fee for that introduction, then that's a no-no. So, uh I'm glad you brought that up. That segues right into another question I want to make sure to ask, which was my experience is that at least angel investors don't love finders, don't love paying finders fees. But my experience, you know, you have you have a lot more experience, much broader experience than I do. How do investors react to finders fees? And you do have, you know, you do have to disclose them, as is often the case in finance. You can do almost anything you want as long as you're as long as you disclose it. Um how do investors react to this? They do. I mean, because it's a, their money. And so if it's not disclosed as a use of funds and it's 5% of their money, then that's like, that's a big chunk out of that pie chart or whatever they've said, yep. you know, is their, is their thing, or they've got it on their say, even when they do their performance, a line item consulting fees or finder, you know what I mean? If it's not in there as a use of funds, then they are in effect, it's no different than, well, it's a little different, but it's almost like buying a sailboat with the money, 5% of the money, because I just, you know, I feel like I'm going to take a tiki vacation or something, right? And so, you know, instead it's, it's you know, so that's, they don't like it. Now, if that person is bringing value to the company, like we described, where they're helping them create their documents, they're helping them figure out what their go-to-market strategy is going to be, what their what their capital needs are going to be over time based on their cash flow, validating their cash flow, validating their, they're doing all that stuff and helping find capital. They have no problem paying the fees because it made the deal more investable and it's helping them make that deal, they get that deal scalable so that the investment that they put in is most likely to produce a return on investment. So we've talked about we've talked about kind of the regulation around this, and and under the best of circumstances, reg, financial regula- regulation is Byzantine. Around finders, it's 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 borderline maddening. But I guess the SEC has proposed a limited exemption for finders starting last year. Where is that? Is that still under consideration? And are you familiar with this limited exemption? And if so, can you comment on what might be the impact on capital finding if it is in fact enacted? So I think it would be terrific. Okay. I think there's still rules. They're still gathering info on that. They usually take a while to do that. They took a long time on the jobs act to, to work all that stuff out. And I think in some States they've gone ahead and said that people can work with finders in those states, particularly on intrastate exemptions, which is one of the uh, of offerings with the jobs act. Uh, and, you know, that way they can people that have developed deep relationships because technically a lot of the most lawyers and accountants and those kind of people, because they're licensed in a different area, they may do introductions, but they don't take any compensation because it would jeopardize their legal, their license and their, their field of choice. Right. right. And so, um, but the, you know, they have relationships and, you know, people that, you know, have just for whatever reason, because they've been around in these areas, they've been somebody that, 
you know, has mentored folks because they're a successful business person and they've mentored this or they exited out of a deal and they have a bunch of investors that they had originally raised money for and make, you know, all of that stuff. So they, um, it would, I think it would really help to open up Rolodexes for people to register as a finder. So you would be able to know who those people are and probably at a state level. Um, and then, you know, they would, it would remove that barrier an additional barrier between companies and potential investors. And it becomes a two way street for those investor people to find deals that they may not get through their, their, their limited funnel of how they, they get access to deals now based on that. So I think it is really good. And I'm hoping it, it gets official here soon. If it hasn't already, I, you know, I haven't heard that it is, and I think I would have heard, but I also haven't gone out searching to see if I could legally become a finder in such a way. Yeah, I don't think it. I don't think it has. I, I had a false start. There's one law firm that issued some posted some sort of blog that implied that it was, but since I couldn't verify with a second source, I did some more digging, and it was just either a. I'm just going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Say it was a badly written blog. Yeah, um, so I think it's I, still out there. So, like, I know Florida, their financial commissioner, I forget the official title, but he is trying to rewrite legislation down there um, because they're of these limits that their interstate has. And for your listeners, an interstate exemption is when a company in a state can general solicit to investors within that state, accredited and unaccredited, usually. Every state has their specific rules, but it's what the SEC modified the 504 Reg D five hundred four exemption to allow companies to raise up to five million dollars in their state, and that works really well for established businesses that want to franchise or want to do this stuff and reach out to people that may not be traditional angel investors. And the way it sometimes is written, they they because legislators don't under often understand business, they may have um, been a they may have put rules in place that really cause more of a barrier than it. And one of the things is like requirements of certain financials and requirements of certain history and requirements of certain people in the business, you know, and so he's trying to fix that and then also enable people to use finders because that way it's a low cost way without going through a broker dealer to get access to capitals and people's Rolodexes legally. I'm talking with Karen Rands and the topic is should I use a finder to raise capital? Um, let me pull a 180 here. Who shouldn't use a finder? Who's not a good candidate to use a finder or work with a finder? I really think it is <laughs> the people that do. Uh, <laughs> it's like the people that. Okay, so there's this thing that happens a lot of times with entrepreneurs where they'll go, those investors, they just don't get it. And the problem is, is that the reason why the investors don't get it is because that entrepreneur doesn't know how to communicate their their unique value proposition, or they have real gaps that an experienced investor sees as a red flag that's going to not have that company be successful. And if the attitude of the founder is, I know everything, so it's just these stupid investors that don't get it, I'm going to go get a finder to find me the the investors that do get it and the investors that do get it are ending up going to be people that don't have that same knowledge and level and skill of those sophisticated investors that know to avoid that deal. So those are the ones that then when it goes south are going to be the ones most impatient about getting their money about and most likely to cause a legal action against that company. So it all kinds of centers around if an investor, if a company is struggling to raise capital, then there's something that they're not doing right within their business or the way that they're approaching their capital, the way they're not doing a licensed way. Because you can general solicit investors. You can be your own finder and find investors just by advertising legally that you're raising capital. And so you don't, you need a finder if you do that, but that costs money too. So it's people that are trying to avoid paying money for the knowledge and the experience and the effort it takes to raise capital and uh, they're going to, you know, it doesn't usually work out that way in the long run very well. So not all of these stories end well, right? Uh, you, may, you may retain one or more finders. 
who are ultimately not successful in raising capital. How easy or hard is it to terminate the relationship with that finder? Well, if you have a, if you don't have an agreement, there's nothing, nothing gets done. You can, I mean, if you feel like you, like whatever, I mean, but there's no skin on either side. So it really doesn't matter. You can just forget them. Right. Yep. You know, <laughs> and then you've got, you know, if you have a contract, then there's usually terms, should be terms in the contract of how you would in that contract based on non-performance. Um, and then there should be the, the finder savvy, they'll have a provision for, you know, uh, a non-circumvent on the, the, uh, the, the ones that they did find it in there and you just would go through the procedure. They might be a 30 day cure period or something like that. You might need to unravel to reach out to the investors that they talk to, to make sure that finder doesn't say something bad about you. You know, that would be a good thing to do to make sure you now establish that relationship because you're not going to be able to depend on that finder from following up with them. And so you need to, you know, that's a big thing that you need to make sure you've got the relationship. I mean, I mean the, the entrepreneurs that make mistakes of that are the ones that are naive about the process of raising capital, the time and materials and, t- and effort it takes to do that. And they're trying to outsource that, right? Um, or they're, they're, they don't have the skills to talk to investors. So go, go, you can hire a coach to help you with that stuff. I mean, I offer program. I mean, I have offered programs for that. You know, you can learn how to raise capital and talk about your business. That's the beauty of these incubators and accelerators. And there's a gazillion of them. There's like over 35 of them in Atlanta. So you can go get help on learning how to raise capital and find investors yourself and then just accept that it's going to take time. Like you said, two years, right? It's like it's going to take time to do that. So do what you have to do. It's really difficult sometimes to build a business and find capital. That's why it becomes something that all of your team can work on as part of their assignments and be in the company, vested in the company finding capital, but not operating as an unlicensed finder. Yeah, you, met, you mentioned all the accelerators now. We, we, we go back long enough, long <laughs> enough where there was basically one accelerator in town. And now <laughs> it's like the new state bird of Georgia, right? <laughs> it's the business accelerator, basically. Yeah. And there, criticism, by the way, it's awesome. Well, and they're not all created equal. So you got to, you know, also as an entrepreneur, do a little due diligence to make sure that they've got the right skill set and community that's right for your business. So a um, couple more questions before we, we let you go. I know you're, you're busy. I want to be respectful of your time, but um, can, can finders be used to find capital other than seed capital Are finders ever used to find debt or SBA lending or purchase order financing, anything of that, you know, the less conventional financing forms. Yes. They are. So it's interesting about that because I actually uh, asked the SEC about finders with VCs and um, and they and they came back in a a noncommittal sort of way that VCs are right. But, you know, it's it's all capital that regulated by fin you know finra rules well since broker dealers are the only ones vcs are not regulated by broker dealers and there is no investor interest like there's no harm to investors because the investors that invest in vc funds you're not finding investors for the vc you're finding in a vc for the company so the only thing that the sec and finra care about are those investors and what they put their money in so technically you can use a finder to go find vcs and vcs oftentimes will have a a core group of people they trust to source deals right? That they've worked with. They might've been entrepreneurs and residents. They might be investor uh, companies that they previously invested in, or they got to know a professional as a result of that particular um, company that they had invested in. So they have a relationship with them and they will pay a fee to that person that brought them the deal. And they have an agreement on that. So, so finders can go different, you know, to VCs also, 
SBA, you can be, you can go find loans for entrepreneurs because again, it's not investor capital. It's not regulated by the SEC. You could go to family offices. You can go to private equity funds. You can go to all of those other types of capital and find capital for um, an entrepreneur and it not uh, be subject to SEC regulations. I'm glad I made time to ask that question because I didn't know any of that. So that's awesome. Um, Karen, we're, we're, we're out of time and I'm sure there are questions that either our listeners wish we had gone into more depth with, or they would question we didn't ask at all. They wish we had asked if somebody wants to contact you to talk more about this, um, can they do so? And what's the best way to do, to do that? Well, uh, a best way to have like a live conversation like this would be to go to my website, karenrands.co. I think it's in your show notes and on the contact page. I uh, fill out, you say, oh, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an investor, whatever. It'll send you a confirmation email with a link to my calendar. You can set up a half hour call. If you want to just ask a question, uh, you can you know, hit me up on Twitter, Karen Rands. Everything's Karen Rands. Uh, on, on Facebook, the best way would be the Karen Rands. That's my public business profile. And uh, you can you know, put, just put in a comment there or send me a message. And I'm happy to have a conversation or a dialogue with anybody that has questions about this topic or any other topic when it comes to raising capital or doing due diligence for trying to validate a deal because you don't have time, you're not part of an angel group and you want to validate a deal, you know, any of those kind of things. I'm, I'm all about the compassionate capitalism of getting more companies funded, more people educated and getting how to do that. So we become, our economy becomes bulletproof. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Karen Rands so much for sharing her expertise with us. We will be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook. Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Bradyware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.